Hey everyone, welcome to You Love to See It, Fanbyte.com's movie and TV podcast. I'm Merritt Kay, features and trending editor of Fanbyte.com, and joining me this week are uh, Stephen Strom. Despite everything, it's still me. Wow. <laughs> Undertale reference in 2020, huh? Yeah, on a Thing podcast too. So you on know. a Thing podcast, yeah. And uh, Danielle Rando. Hi, hello. I'm so excited. Yeah, I think we're all excited because this week we are talking about the thing. And the thing about Wait, the sorry, thing. Sorry, what, what is it though? What what thing? You got to be oh, more specific. Uh, who's on first? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the thing about this Baseball. movie is that uh, I think it's like one of our favorite movies, like for all of us. Like collectively? Certainly, yeah. Certainly for me, yes. it is one of the few movies I would describe as basically perfect. Mm-hmm. And that's really fascinating to me because the first time I saw it, I was surprised to learn that it did very poorly in its initial release. Um, but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's just, you know, do like a, a brief little uh, description, maybe for people who haven't seen it, but you really should watch it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, if you haven't seen it in a while, um, basically, so the thing is a 1982 sci-fi horror movie directed by uh og john carpenter (laughs) and written by bill lancaster based on a novella uh from 1938 by john w campbell jr called who goes there and it's about a bunch of guys in antarctica who encounter an alien that basically can be anything it kills and then takes the form of any organism it encounters and is able to perfectly mimic them um and they're essentially trapped. It's it's a um, you know it's a trapped in the house horror movie basically, um, because they are trapped in this Antarctic research station, and um, they are confronted with this creature that could be any one of them, and everything basically devolves into paranoia, mistrust, and chaos pretty quickly. Uh, features Kurt Russell as the protagonist, who is the uh, the helicopter pilot. Yeah. RJ McReady and uh, <laughs> he's ready for anything features a pretty <laughs> fantastic cast including Wilford Brimley who was <laughs> who was cast only because he looks so average that <laughs> that they thought that people would sort of forget about him between his first appearance and then later on when he becomes important um, also features a young Keith David uh-huh. uh, in an incredible role uh, TK Carter David Clennon, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Masur, Donald Moffat, Jill Polis, and Thomas G. Waits. So let's just kick things off. Um, I'm curious, what are uh, what's your history with this movie? When did you first see The Thing? I have a, a very brief but very funny introduction to The Thing, which was the gory, gruesome, and grotesque horror makeup show at Universal Studios Florida in, like, the mid-90s, which was actually, like, back in that time, Universal had some, like, educational programming at their theme park, at their Floridian theme park, like, how to make movies, and this was the horror show, and there was a clip, and it's the infamous sort of uh, defibrillator scene where, uh, which we'll talk about later, but (laughs) where, you know, a man's uh, arms are cut off by a thing creature as he's trying to sort of revive him. So as like a 10-year-old, I saw that, thought that was the fucking coolest thing, but never actually saw the movie until college. And since then, I've watched it probably 
just well over a dozen times. Let's call it like 15 times at this point. It's one of my favorites. So, yeah. Thanks, uh, Universal Studios. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for me, it well, I uh, very vividly remember. Um, I think I've mentioned this on either this podcast or on Fan with Proper before, but like uh, growing up, my parents were, or at least one of my parents was very opposed to M-rated video games, but for whatever reason, did had not have any problem with R-rated movies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I saw it very, very young. Uh, it, I remember vividly that it was in my Uncle Mark's uh, duffel bag that he had brought with him to my grandparents' house because we all used to stay there on holidays and stuff like that together and we would uh, watch, like, just watch movies over and over and over again out there because it was all you could do in the middle of a farmhouse in South Dakota. Um, <laughs> and one of the movies he had in his duffel bag that he brought with him for that long uh, holiday weekend was The Thing. We ended up watching it there and since then I've probably seen it a dozen, two dozen times. Like, pro- it's got to be more than a dozen at this point. It is, I, I have said in Slack chat, many times to this point uh, my favorite movie ever made um nice. it like straight up it is the movie where people ask me what what is your favorite movie it's not a question i think about very often when it comes to video games or music or anything else but mm-hmm. for some reason the thing stands out to me in that way um and yeah i just adore it <laughs> up and down so much so that i've kind of soft blocked us doing this episode for a while because <laughs> i was too afraid to talk about it <laughs> yeah you gotta face your fear steven yeah you know what i was just paranoid about uh about what i would say <laughs> so i'm looking at my letterbox and apparently i first saw this movie almost exactly a year ago oh shit oh uh, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on this show or on Fanwith, but I did not like horror movies growing up. I was hmm. a very frightful child. Um, I got nervous watching like cartoons where a character was like heading into some kind of peril. Um, like I would, I was very anxious. Um, and so horror <laughs> movies were not really my thing and haven't been my thing or weren't my thing until... About a year and a half or, or maybe two years ago when Danielle and I started watching movies once a week and yeah. sort of edged our way into horror, I think, through like schlocky 80s horror <laughs> comedy um, yeah. and then into sort of more serious stuff. I'm still um, I think I'm, I'm just on the cusp of being able to get to like contemporary horror Mm-hmm. because it's like actually frightening unlike a lot of older horror now. Right. <laughs> um, man, the things people thought were scary in the 50s were really funny. <laughs> yeah, it's um, amazing. <laughs> I mean, obviously those movies are frightening in their own way. But um, so The Thing was one of my first kind of forays into like real fucked up gore horror. Right. And this movie just blew my fucking mind when we watched <laughs> it because like everything about this movie like the pacing of it um the the lighting and like set design is incredible obviously the creature effects are like some of the best in like any film yeah in like like, history the best practical effects probably that i've ever seen um the head on the ground in the hospital scene i was so amazed by because there's there are parts of this where like the some of the like more humanoid looking things don't really hold up quite well but that severed head that is like moving around on the ground under its own power it looks so fucking real it's bananas (laughs) it's it's wild um (laughs) and uh yeah, i think this was one of my first john carpenter movies if not the first and uh it 
sort of sparked my love for his work because like I now am an incredible John Carpenter fan. Even the films that aren't as well regarded or that don't have kind of the same cult status, um, you know, because John Carpenter, like people think of him and you think of, you think of the thing, you think of Halloween, um, Escape from New York. Big Trouble uh, in Little China. Big Trouble in Little China. They live. Um, Yeah. But, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, Prince of Darkness, In the Uh Mouth of Madness, Uh, The Annihilation Trilogy. These are fucking incredible movies as well. And like some of the same kinds of vibes and themes that we're dealing with here. Ghosts of Mars right up there with everybody else. (laughs) Wait, is Ghosts of Mars... uh, Was Ice Cube in that? He was. He definitely was. was. Yes. Um, Ghosts of Mars famously the movie that made John Carpenter stop making movies for a decade because it was so critically (laughs) I kind of want to rewatch it. I definitely did see it uh, around the time it was released um, on TV. But yeah, no, what a, what a cast on that movie. Ice Cube, uh, Jason Statham, Pam Greer, Clea Duvall. But, oh uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I know he did retire um, in the 2000s for a little bit. And uh, but um, yeah, no. So getting back to back to the thing. Um, you know, basically, we we have this research team up in the Antarctic that's entirely composed of of dudes, uh, which is interesting in a few ways because most horror at this point in the eighties is built yeah. around this concept of female protagonists, like the the last girl, yeah. and um, Halloween. And in fact, Halloween, that- right? Yeah, he he kind of pioneers this, right? Um, and that and is alien totally too. and alien is actually one of the reasons why this got made right, right. yeah like, yeah yeah. Ali- yeah exactly because um when this movie came out it was compared to et and i guess audiences and critics were were on this kick of wanting optimistic depictions mm-hmm. of like contacting alien life and et was fucking enormous right yeah. it, like <laughs> it, and um this the thing comes out like what um so 82 when was yeah, june of 82 it was like june 25th i think is what we're seeing that's a summer release huh yeah. yeah okay so uh yeah et comes out june 11th 1982 oh, this is two weeks later and the thing comes out two weeks later oh my god et has a budget of 10.5 million makes almost 800 million dollars the oh thing has god. a budget of 15 million and makes not even 20 million Woof. <laughs> It yeah. it just utterly tanks. Um, people hate this fucking movie when it comes out. Um, yeah. There's that movie that summer. Uh, you know there had been all of these successful sci-fi movies, not just ET, and um, critics call it uh, instant junk, a wretched <laughs> excess. Um, <laughs> let me see what else. Uh, boring, undermined by the special effects, bereft, despairing, and nihilistic. Lacking pacing and devoid of warmth and humanity. Um, sacrifices everything at the altar of gore. Roger Ebert thought it was scary, but offered nothing original beyond the special effects. Um, the New York Times said it was entertaining only if the viewer needed to see a spider-headed legs and dog autopsies. And I did. <laughs> and you did, yep. right? Um, and uh, it's... It's just kind of it's it's unreal to me to to yeah. look back and see that and it, it has to be just sort of like the the tone of the time and like mm-hmm. the proximity to ET. 
Um, but Alien and, is what? Alien... Um, 79. 79, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. only three years before. And that one certainly... There's a lot of tonal uh, similarities here. That was not like a happy fucking movie. Uh, no, but we did no. have we did have something of a happy ending, certainly. Yes, we did have yeah. that final girl that people were probably a little bit more used to. Although slashers were still fairly young at this point uh, right, in, yeah. in the early 70s, but it was still fitting within that trope. Like it definitely fit to have, okay, this is really bad, but if you're smart enough and you're good enough and you have a cute cat, you might survive. Like there was right. like at least some hope where the thing, I, you can interpret the ending certainly many different ways, but there there is no happy ending and people don't, this is like a really interesting point that I, I continually go back to when I watch this movie. People don't really fuck up in this movie. Like people no. are actually doing their best and they're yes. not stupid. Like they're not, these are not like a bunch of bumbling like morons who are just making mistakes left and right. It's like everybody's actually doing their best and that's still not good enough. And that is a pretty dire kind of message or, or thesis. For right. Me. Like from the jump, right? That's one of the things that's amazing to me about this movie is that it um lets its cast be competent and yeah and, and it doesn't matter um yeah, yeah. <laughs> that and it makes it that much scarier because like horror movies so much of them historically have been about you know yelling like don't go into the basement what are you doing <laughs> um, and, and you know to an extent like that is something that we just like suspend uh disbelief of when we watch horror movies is just that that's a trope that's what happens people are dumb or uh, greedy or selfish or horny and those things cause them to get killed right <laughs> in the thing uh they recover the remains of the alien and uh bring it back to their base and um it the has norwegians like, do specifically not our characters right right, off the bat. right and they well they recover it basically from uh from the norwegian base right and yeah uh, there are two like sources of thing oh is there end up like infecting people yeah because it's the dog at the beginning and then right. they do bring the body back and that body also does uh yeah. that one converts i think the the guy with the glasses not the yes. glasses yeah. the guy with the beard the redhead guy right. i forget guy. his name Fuchs, he gets think, killed maybe? by one of the one of the corpses that reanimates Bennett? itself for Bennings. some reason Bennings. Bennings. Yeah, that sounds right. yeah. for um, some reason in my mind i i couldn't keep the the corpses straight between like the multiple different uh there's a lot of corpses. Things that come movie. up. There's a lot yeah. of strains of things. And they all yeah, kind of just turn <laughs> into like guts anyway. Um, yeah. But so. This is why I was afraid the, to talk about my favorite movie because I'm going to say it's my favorite movie and then people are going to be like, well, we don't fucking know shit. Um, no. But one of the first things they do, like, so they do autopsies on the remains of like this weird thing that they found and they're like, oh, there's like normal human organs in here. What the fuck? Um, and then the sled dog that they've been like hunting uh, starts like killing and like eating the other dogs and like making them into part of it literally and, uh, digesting them right and they're like oh what should we do let's grab the fucking flamethrower and kill this thing immediately and it's like <laughs> yes that's yes, a good idea yeah. good plan and like <laughs> it is a good plan but it ultimately uh doesn't work right because it there is this other source of um infection Right. And even even right off the bat, um, because we open with these like very austere shots. Uh, well, we open open on a UFO, which is very interesting. But then right. we open otherwise on these very like austere, very like uh, beautiful and chilling shots of like the Antarctic landscape. And the very first thing that happens is this Norwegian guy is screaming and shouting and accidentally shoots somebody, which prompts. Uh, Gary, Lieutenant Gary, whatever his name is, to shoot back. Gary it's not like yeah. he shot first. Like, oh, 
you know, it's somebody we don't know. I need to shoot him. It was like, no, he shot somebody first. So nobody, nobody even made that mistake of like, we just incited violence for no reason, basically. Like, it was all a mistake and it was all just circumstances. And this is bad for everyone. (laughs) Even more, there's even subtler things too that like kind of, and this ties into to take it back even a step further, this ties into, like, I think, I, for, I forget if this is from an interview or from the commentary or from where this comes from, but I believe at the time that John Carpenter, years later, basically said that, you know, his rule for Halloween was the monster is always scarier when it's not on screen, because you don't mm-hmm. know where it is or what mm. it's doing, and then suddenly, like, oh, Michael Myers could be behind Jamie Lee Curtis inside of a closet, and it all makes sense because, you know, you never knew where he was. This was him intentionally trying to make a movie that does the exact opposite, where it's like, how do you make something scary when it's constantly on screen and sometimes mm-hmm. part of it is you don't literally don't know if it is on screen or not it could be because yeah. uh, somebody anybody around you could be the, the thing but um, uh, even uh, beyond that though in terms of breaking rules of like genre conventions at the time uh, there's not like when the initial time where they see the, the thing creature um, trying to convert the dogs or absorb the dogs there's no reaction shot like there's no major like scream and just like ah you know like big goofy thing like that it's just dead quiet this guy sees his dogs being um, liquefied in front of him and his immediate reaction is to shut the door (laughs) like he shuts the door on the thing uh, first like so that it can't get out and then he goes for help you know and and nobody's like shouting and screaming until later on when the rules of what's happening to them start to become clearer and they know just how in danger they are which feels to me like such a realistic little detail of like if I saw some big weird plant looking monster thing in front of me and it wasn't like necessarily like yelling at me or talking or hissing or whatever my first thought would be like okay this is probably something I don't understand that is fu- looks fucked up but I should think about I need to think about this for a second like what what in the reality could this possibly be and it's not yeah. until later in the movie yeah. that they realize what it is that they start freaking out and start getting attacked and murdered left and right right yeah um yeah do we want to talk about like some of the interpretations of this film because oh God. there are, there are a lot this is a film that's like laden with uh so much imagery and so many themes um obviously made in 1982 and the the idea of invisible enemies who could be anywhere and anyone mm-hmm. uh a lot of uh fears of communism mm-hmm. and of like infiltration um also uh the blood testing scene a lot of analogs to hiv uh with also, yeah. the all male cast kind of contributing to that, right? Um, all male cast alone in the wilderness together for like months or years at a time. Bunch of guys in a bunker, you know. All they got are roller skates and old VHS <laughs> tapes. Like, what are you gonna? Uh-huh. <laughs> I have to. I have That's to. You want uh, superstitious? Uh, yes, yeah, seriously. Well, the thing I have to ask also about this, which I. This is one of those things that I don't necessarily think was like John Carpenter and crew necessarily thought like, oh, we're making an AIDS analog. But it is something that like at this point in the epidemic, like that was pretty early on in, uh, you know, in in, like the cultural conversation around it. Reagan was still, you know, a complete piece of shit about it. Um, it, It's both it does feel to me like it's both Cold War and very much uh, the AIDS thing. And it's like. Watching the testing and even watching people, individuals, like especially Windows, when we watch him being tested, there's like a a huge sigh of relief when he when it shows that he's not a thing. Right. But it's almost like there's another question here of whether or not you would know you were a thing or not. And I don't think you 
necessarily would, which is like the scariest thing about the whole actual movie. Like, number one scariest thing, bad things can happen to you and you can do fuck all about it, even if you're competent and smart and work together. Like, it's not enough sometimes. But scary thing number two is like, something like this happened to you, would you even know it? And right. that also kind of works with the sort of possible interpretation of, of, of there's something here about HIV or AIDS because of this whole at this point, being this early, you don't you don't know if you have it necessarily. You don't know who has it. Like it, it really does work very, very closely with that, which is also like really freaky and effective, whether it was intentional or not, I think. I think yeah. for me, um like thematically, that is a really like interesting question of like this film is like about betrayal, right? And like betrayal yeah. on so many levels, like by other people. Um by like your own body, by all of these things. I think- by like the systems you thought were in place to protect you from things yeah. like this too. Like yeah. the com- one of the things that the stood computer, out to me on this, yeah, re- yeah on this reviewing <laughs> was straight up that like they, tr- uh, Blair in particular, like implicitly trusts this computer to basically like tell him like, okay, like it sows the initial seeds of distrust and paranoia because you know up until Blair starts like telling McReady and like watch Clark close and all that other stuff and Clark. Uh, ultimately ends up being one of the people who does not even get infected by the thing at all during the movie. Um, And verifiably so. Um, It's not until that, like, he relies on this computer that doesn't know shit about the thing. Like, this this 1982 (laughs) computer doesn't know the damn thing about this, like, fucking flying saucer alien from six million years ago that crash landed (laughs) on Earth. But yet he trusts it implicitly and then begins to, like, erode at their their, um, trust in each other immediately. Like, you know, he starts talking to Clark and he says like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm thinking. Uh, and then he talks to McGreedy and says, I don't, you know, this, something's fucked here. He destroys all their communications equipment, all their the stuff to get out of the facility, anything that could, many things that could have possibly helped them or protected them in different ways or whatever, because he's so terrified that this thing will get out, not even knowing this is another thing we'll probably get to eventually, but not even knowing if this thing is actually hostile or not to people. Cause it's not until it, they literally light it on fire that it ever actually tries to hurt humans like, at we this see the human, the human-ish things earlier on, like from the Norwegian base, mm. right? We we do see corpses and we do see like signs of violence, right? But it is it is more subtle, certainly, until later on it actually starts taking over people and we physically see that with Bennings, right? right. When when he is taken over. And I think that's Honestly, one of the scariest parts of this entire movie, even for me, having seen it so many times, the way Bennings kind of runs out, he runs out into the snow. He's half, he's more than half. He's like 90% formed as uh, Bennings, but he still has the claws. He still has these like weird hands, right? He looks scared too, right? Like he he he, looks scared. He just looks up and he does this freakish inhuman roar uh that i still think is one of the just scariest sound effects of all time even drake my my dog is very upset right now because i'm just talking about uh this this sort of scream it's it's really incredible and really terrifying and it made me think that's what it originally made me think of like oh does he not even know does he not Mm -hmm. know he's a thing like does he just think he's like oh my god what's happening to me and he's trying to talk and he can't talk yet that kind of thing like just I think amazing. I guess like my take on that. I think I think they know. Like I th- I don't think it's like. Uh, I guess that's kind of like a question that's like up in the air. Um, but yeah, I, yeah. I, um, also, like a lot of the ambiguity around this film was one of the reasons that audiences didn't like it. Right. So <laughs> at the end of a screening, um, Carpenter asked like. Um, 
or one of the audience members was like, well, which one was it at the end? Which one was the thing? And he was like, oh, it's up to your imagination. They're like, oh, I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) I need word of God. I need I need to know what the canon is. Uh, But yeah, the progression in this film, too, like everything escalates in such like a fantastic way. Right. (laughs) Uh, Just getting up to like from like the very early scene with like the flamethrower to the ending when they realize that like, oh, the creatures like realize that it's kind of like fucked. So its whole plan is to just destroy the power so that they freeze to death and it can just hibernate <laughs> until someone comes and finds it again. Right. Yeah, uh. it, it's it's smart. It, it's smarter than us kind of thing. It And, you know, uh, not, I keep getting their names wrong, but it's it's Blair who keeps saying, you think it wanted to be an animal? An animal's not getting a thousand miles away. <laughs> you right. Know, kind of Blair's, thing. And, Blair's Wilford Grimley, but yeah, the character names kind of get right, lost Blair, in the shuffle yeah, pretty easily to, in this movie. I know. It, it, I'm trying to get it right. They're all pretty funny. Like, there is a something that I actually really enjoy about the film that it there's like a tiny bit of camp to some elements of it or and maybe it's just kind of how long it's been with uh with sort of some of it but there's actually some really dark humor in this movie too that I mm-hmm. really really mm-hmm. appreciate uh, especially sort of at the end of maybe the most shocking sequence which, well maybe the second most shocking sequence which is the <laughs> blood test sequence right and after um Palmer is changed and that looks corny as hell uh but yeah, in, yeah. again in kind of a good way uh we have that moment with Gary where he's like you know everybody else has been tested everybody's like has pointing three flamethrowers at him and he's just like you know I know you guys have had a hard day but I would really not like to sit like spend my winter tied to this fucking couch and it's just this like great moment of one of my all-time favorite light moments that really i think it's like the most perfectly paced movie i've ever seen because it is so scary it builds such incredible tension it gets it goes right into it right from the very very beginning we 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 have action we have a moment of like horrified examination action horrified examination and then these like tiny points of humor that are just pitch perfect in this way that i i also think really contributes to that pacing being great even in that scene, the, the 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 really good editing around um, when he tests blood tests Nalls, the 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 chef, I believe of the of the team, yeah. tests his blood, uh, determines he's not a thing, and then in, there's no like scene of him getting like you know cut free and let up or whatever. It just smash cuts to Nalls holding the flamethrower and McGrady <laughs> testing the blood, and they're like, okay, we're on the safe side now. We're on the side. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> like they're just so relieved, and it's kind of it's like quietly darkly funny that they're just so happy to know that like both of them aren't monsters. Yeah. It's really good. It's a really really good moment. Another um another aspect I uh I want to talk about in terms of that kind of blood test is how often it's been parodied. Yes. <laughs> and that's, oh my that's God. almost like how you know something is a really classic scene, a really well-remembered scene, a really really like iconic kind of thing. Um, and other scenes in this movie that are just as memorable and just as creepy and freaky have not been parodied as much. You know, far be it to me to say, I'm sure it's been it's happened before, but I haven't seen a whole lot of AED pads, you know, eat a guy's <laughs> hands. Like, I'm sure it's happened before. Wait, what movies have parodied the blood test scene? I feel like, I mean, okay, this is uh, telling on myself, but I know there have been, like, a couple of South Park episodes that yeah, have done this. Yeah, there absolutely have. Okay. There's been, like, I just... In, it kind of in the ether in pop culture, I know several animated shows have had a scene that was kind of like this. Like, oh, we got to line up and test something in a very, like, 
heightened, scary, creepy way. So Right, yeah. It's it's funny to me how often this I've seen this one. And again, I'm not I, I can only think of a couple of solid examples, but you're I can confirm there. that uh, like yes, you are you're right about the South Park one though, for sure. And I wonder in my head that I cannot imagine there's not an episode of The Simpsons that does this at some point. There has to be, mm-hmm. right? It's one of those things where it's just like cultural it's like reverse cultural osmosis. You just yeah. know that like you it's not even that you like you know that exists even though you haven't seen it. It's uh, because like you've heard so many people talking about it. It's just you know it exists. Period. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Uh, yeah. Uh can we talk about another iconic scene which yeah. is the the Norris uh defib scene? Yes. Yes. Where, uh, uh they f- what they find Norris or something, and he's like unconscious. Norris has a heart attack. He has, he a, has heart a heart attack, attack. while McCready yeah. comes back in. Yes, yeah. and uh, yeah. they try to <laughs> Copper tries to revive him with a defibrillator, and his chest opens and turns into a huge mouth that bites <laughs> off both of Copper's arms. And <laughs> the way that they did this scene, I had to read about this uh, today because yeah. I hadn't like looked it up before. Is they had a double amputee. Where oh, wow. where fake arms filled with wax bones, rubber veins, and jello. Wow. <laughs> and uh the arms were placed in the, the stomach with the mechanical jaws, and at that point the actor pulled away to like sever them. That's wow. incredible. It's, I never knew it's that. It's really good, yeah. Like the way that they pulled that off. And then that scene also is where we get the head. Mm-hmm. Coming oh, off head. from the body, multiple heads in this scene, but yes, <laughs> the double, yeah, the double head spider. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be fucking kidding me! <laughs> so one quick, uh, one quick thing about that in that specific line, and this is a shout out to the uh, Faculty of Horror podcast because that's where I heard this originally. This really funny story about that sequence. So Rob Botton was the visual effects supervisor, and he was like 22 at the time, and he just had all these wild ideas, and the way that he basically got this sequence green. Greenlit, he like improvised telling uh, John Carpenter about like, okay, so if I'm the thing and I don't want the guy with the pads on me and I don't want him zapping me, so I'm going to eat his hands. Like he went through this whole thing from the point of view of the thing. And John Carpenter literally said, you got to be fucking kidding me. And like the line made it in because it was just such a fucking ridiculous oh my God. sequence. Uh, which I don't know. I don't know. This is maybe a... a well, we can come back to this later, but I do just want to bookmark this for now to remember that, like, the whole idea of the POV of the thing, too, ties back into some, like, later fan interpretations of the story and stuff like that through Peter Watts's uh, oh my short God, story. Yes, the I was going to bring that up. Okay, nice. do you want to just talk about that now? Yeah, okay, so this story, um, it's, yeah, it was a 2011 Hugo Award nominee and uh, by Peter Watts, who I, I guess he's like this hard sci fi guy, right? I think so, yeah. Um, so the thing about the story, I like it a lot. It There is one response to it, which is that it makes the thing less scary because it gives a voice to the thing. Mm. But I think he does a really good job of giving the thing an alien consciousness. Right. And basically that whole story is just about the thing from the perspective of the thing. Right. And uh and it how, thinks it's like helping people. Like it's like, well, why yeah. wouldn't you want to be part of the collective well, with it me? Ca- like, it's right. basically traveled through space and all of the the creatures that it's encountered before now are like it in that um they have this like distributed consciousness. Kind of like right. octopuses where like their brain is like spread throughout their whole body. And when it encounters right. people, mm. it's fucking terrified of them. Because like <laughs> when it's like trying to like 
move into a person, it's like, wow, the most of their bodies are just like fucking dead void. Like they just have their self in this little part in their head. Like what the fuck is wrong with them? <laughs> yeah, That's like so dangerous. Like what if someone just cuts off your head? Um, and uh, yeah, it's like um, it doesn't like understand itself as as violent or anything. Um, it's It's sort of just like this is how it knows how to be and it encounters this species of people that are like fundamentally separate beings and is like horrified by it. And, um, I would, yeah, I would really recommend reading it. Um, and by the end, it's basically become, um, convinced that humanity is like beyond salvation. And, uh, the last line is like really fucking chilling. Um, and I'm not going to spoil it. So just like go read it. Uh, it's called uh, the things, the things by Peter Watts. The, nice. the part about the, the story where, like, the, the criticism of it that it makes the thing less scary because it gives it a voice kind of falls down for me is because, like, I don't think that the, the thing itself is not particularly scary to me in this story. And I think this maybe ties into why this is one of my favorite movies of all time, despite the fact that uh, I'm a pretty big weenie when it comes to a lot of horror too maybe like a yeah similar to you Merit. like i still haven't watched hereditary because that movie seems like it's gonna fucking stress me the hell out um yeah <laughs> stuff like that um but i can still go back and watch this and just like have a great time um and because the thing about it is i don't think the thing is particularly a, a scary creature like what is scary is it's a mixture of the paranoia between mm. the two or t- between the two characters between all the characters going down to like the, the part where mcready is um Trapped outside of the facility because Nalls has cut him loose, as he says. Um, but uh, McReady finds his way back to the base, uh, and Childs is like, "We should let at least keep him out there because he's probably one of those things. We should let him die." And they're like, "Well, what if we're wrong?" And he says, "Then we're wrong." Um, and <laughs> yeah, st- stuff like that. But also the idea of like more high-minded stuff that like hard sci-fi has tried to tackle over the years in ways that usually boil down to like. A lot of the, you know, in in ver- to various uh, uh, degrees of success, like the story of like uh, the the right thinking scientist person versus the uh, versus the military and the government or whatever, you know, movies like Contact and Arrival yeah. and stuff like that, of like yeah. people just trying their best to understand creatures and not being able to, and you know running into the problems that arise from that. And I think this is kind of a, a very good one of those stories, even if it is like a gooey gore fest kind of thing, because it is like throughout the movie, we, we know there are rules. We know we, we mm-hmm. verify that there are rules to the way the things works various points in the movie, like the time where um, they do the blood test and stuff like that. But for the most part, we know there are rules. We just don't know what they are. We like, we, you know, does that we don't know that the thing because it never communicates with them in any real way. We don't know if its consciousness is distributed in you know in a particular way. Does it have individuality in the individual parts? Is it purely mm-hmm. on instinct? Does is it mad at them? Does it hate them? Is it trying to invade? Is it scared? You know, whatever. Right. Um, yeah. And that is almost to me way scarier than the like idea that it's just a hostile presence. It's it's oh, more sure, the yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the unknown, and that's really like what this movie is all about. I think even more so than a movie like alien, which is about like unknown quantity, (laughs) at least. Especially when you move into like the fucking last three movies that they've made that are just like, I mean, aliens is just a big, even even aliens is just an action movie. Like it's um, maybe a horror action movie, but it's fundamentally an action movie. And um, even the first one, I mean, it's a great film and it's really scary, but it is about, 
like an individual that is comprehensible. Right. Uh, yeah. Whereas it's mean. It's it. It's made of hate. It's yeah. just like <laughs> it's made of like car parts and like a turtle and a snake and hate, but acid blood, but it's, it's there and you can like see it and kill it. Um, Right. But you do have to admire its purity. Really? Well, you do. Yes. Yeah. It is the perfect life form. Um, (laughs) Sorry, shadow the hedgehog, but, uh, (laughs) but glad you like that. I'm so Um, glad. I mean, the funny thing is, so just watched some shadow the hedgehog gameplay last week. That's yeah. Okay. Yes. Good. (laughs) Sorry, Daniel. Uh, I, no, no, it's all good. Alien is my knee-jerk reaction favorite movie of all time. So mm. it's it's one of those as well um, where what's so effective for me in terms of this, in terms of the thing, which is a top five for me, no question, and like maybe top three, uh, depends on the day that you ask. What makes this so good for me is uh, what you were talking about, Stephen, about the rules is that I don't actually think we know the rules. I think they right. are just so harried and so tired and so incapable of dealing with this as we all are. And these are, again, like relatively intelligent, decent seeming human beings. Like nobody here is a fuck up. Nobody here is a bishop and, you know, evil, not bishop. Sorry. You know who I'm talking about. Ian Holmes bishop. character in. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, no, that's not bishop. That's uh, it's what, not bishop. Yeah. I'm thinking of the other android, which is embarrassing, but it's OK. Uh, <laughs> um, the bad droid, as you will. There's no will. human malice here. But human malice is much more easy to understand. Like, I don't think we actually do know the rules. I don't think that the blood test is necessarily. Yeah, what the are the rules? Works. I don't. I don't know that there are actually rules that we can comprehend because this intelligence is so completely incomprehensible to us. I mean, yeah, when you're under attack and you can't fight back, well, you gotta figure out what are the rules. It's <clears throat> gonna do something, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and they're trying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the aesthetics of this film beyond the creature effects. Yeah. Uh, One of the most striking things about it the first time I saw it was the lighting because the lighting contributes to the kind of like the, this, the cold atmosphere of this film. And I think just even like the, you know, the poster I think is, is so iconic of like the entire like vibe of the film. What a good poster. These really like cool colors, um, this blue lighting whenever they're like the outside is always sort of like blue and like um, apparently that was based on airport runway lights. Oh, oh. shit. And yeah. uh, they use I mean, they use the blue and the snow to create this impression of like coldness. Um, and then you have these like, you know, the, the flamethrowers and like these flares, which are just like really intense, warm colors. And the inside yeah. is kind of like bathed in this like really muted warm light um all of the costumes are kind of these drab colors they actually mm-hmm. wanted to shoot this film in black and white huh. uh and the reason they didn't is that universal thought that it would affect their ability to sell the tv rights <laughs> wow oh wow so the muted colors are kind of the compromise huh so like I- everything is gray brown blue yeah. I wonder if that ultimately was the the right choice on that too, just by virtue of a. I think the colors ultimately worked out well, but also this movie found its audience later on, largely thanks to home video and TV distribution. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. I also just really love how well it works in contrast. Like this is a movie with these 
just austere, beautiful, gorgeous snowscapes that have this incredible sound design. And the score is also a huge part of this. But it, it looks desolate. It looks like whiteout conditions and sometimes blue skies and sometimes just nighttime, just black, like this really kind of almost nature documentary style, you know, kinds of shots mixed with the gory, goopy stuff, mixed with the really mm-hmm. sweaty, almost like humid and intense mm-hmm. and gross and sweaty and in your face and very up close sequences that are inside. Like it's like claustrophobia mashed up with I guess agoraphobia, like like the fear of like the wide up, open yeah. unknown abyss, right. kind of like both of these things are working so well, and all the characters are going kind of to both extremes all the time, and neither one is comfortable. Neither one is like a place you want to be. You know what I mean? Like it is, it is very uncomfortable in extremes and both extremes and the very very ending sequence does this so perfectly and so well with the fires in the background the kind of idea of like warmth and fire and and at the fireplace and let's share some jim beam together which is a, a very fun <laughs> theory by the way about the ending of the movie. Ad for, uh, for whiskey yeah it's just pitch black otherwise with these embers of the flames and and you know the breath you know of the characters coming out it's just such a study in contrast and it's mm-hmm. That's, again, part of what makes me think this is like a close to perfect kind of movie. Like it's working in these contrasts, but it's doing it in a way that's not calling attention to it. It's not like the movie is sitting there like, now we're outside. Now we're inside. Now we're outside. It's just kind of moving between them so, so smoothly. Right. I mean, even the the dying like fire at the end, too, is such a good reminder of like the desperation of their final position, no matter whether they've killed the thing or not, which is up for debate, obviously, which we can probably get into in a second. But just like, yeah, they're warm now or they've got at least enough fire to keep them alive or, or warmth to keep them alive over the next couple hours, but fire burns out and when it's gone, they're still going to be in Antarctica. Um, <laughs> in the winter at night. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't know, do we want to move into talking about uh, like some of the theories about the ending um, and some of the different things since you guys brought them up? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, sure, I, yeah. I mean, for me, like I'll say that um, I'm not really like a uh, like a fucking game theory person no right um so like the whole like what actually happened thing to me is like is not um always the most interesting thing and i think the then the great thing about the ending of the thing is that it is ambiguous and that um you know you can argue that there are like hints like oh well they they lit all of the the uninfected actors eyes in a certain way and they don't light, light light child's eyes in that way in the last scene um but I love Carpenter's thing of just like, uh, I don't know, what do you think happened? And the audience yeah. being like, no, fuck you, I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not I'm not particularly interested in the in the answers to those questions either. I'm more interested in just the mechanics of like how those scenes are shot and the different ways in which they like um add to the ambiguity of the scene and mm-hmm. like add to openings for for those kinds of things like rather than like leading to answers i'm kind of curious about the ways we like that uh, the the things that we like about the ending that lead to more questions and sure. and more of that ambiguity which to me i mean the one i've always come back to is uh is the breath of the characters because danielle you mentioned this one specifically <laughs> the yeah. uh mcready's breath is uh visible in the in the night child's is not um which but again ties into the idea of like um 
rules and like what we know and what we don't know, which at no point in that movie do they establish the idea that like the thing doesn't need to breathe or if it was, you know, if it does need to breathe or doesn't need to breathe, can it do it? Uh, you know, reflexively, because it's supposed to be a perfect imitation. So if it was a perfect imitation, wouldn't it just be breathing anyway? Or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I'm the same way. I don't I, I couldn't possibly care less about like what theory is right. Like and I love I I also just generally love when a creator or a director is like, fuck you, figure it out. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I made my thing and here it is. Like, I, I respect the shit out of that. What's fun. Yeah. What's also fun for me is just the. um how many theories there are and how much it is a reflection of people like needing to continue the fiction in their head because they just can't deal with it. Right. Right. Like that's actually pretty fun for me. There is another uh, fun theory that I kind of love, uh, which has to do with the Jim Beam bottle because um, right. Creedy actually shares his bottle with Childs, right? He, he He's sharing it. And there's a point in the film where, you know, they're talking about, oh, Fuchs is like, the next best scientist who's still alive, basically. And he's like, I don't think we should share food. Like, it might just be a particle. Like, he's just... What's beautiful about that is it's just a callback to that. And yeah. I love that one little note of, like, this is this guy is actually an intelligent scientist. He's really just doing his best. He has no fucking idea what's happening, and he's just trying to throw out ideas. Like, maybe we should just eat from cans. I don't know. Like, we could get Probably infected safer. in other ways. We don't have an actual, like, you know, CDC here to tell us how to deal with this. So that right. was fun. But yeah, and then it, he's sharing the bottle, like, to either stir up some shit or he's a thing and he's trying to get the particle. Do- yeah. Again, doesn't matter. I just enjoy a good callback. But, well, and if it, you know, it immediately undercuts the, like, you know, whether it was intentional or not, the, the breath thing, too. It's just like, because it immediately throws a wrench into the idea that, well, if Childs is the thing because we can't see his breath, then, well, doesn't that bottle also indicate that McReady might also be the thing because he's trying to share the particles with the other guy? So it's like, just immediately throws a bunch of wrenches in any kind of, like, solid interpretation of this ending, like, any kind and of, like... Both things and they both don't know it and they both don't think they're things there you go exactly I don't and then know, they, whatever. And then, uh, like <laughs> i love the bleak ending it feels uh more and more relevant every day right like sure. it, it just being alive in 2020 it, it things are bad and most of us feel very powerless and incapable of, of doing a whole lot about them right in terms of of you know real political power or real uh financial power or real power in any other kind of way like most people i think and i you know if i'm just an entitled millennial smack me but uh i i, I do think there is certainly a sense of powerlessness kind of going on in our world and it just feels so right. It just feels so right that an alien intelligence that is, you know, probably intelligent, although that's not exactly established, that it's not kind of just uh, doing what its biological imperative is. Right. Like this could turning into other things could be as natural as walking and sleeping and breathing. It could be like a cat who has some intelligence, but is not, you know, uh, sapient, basically. It just feels right. It feels so right for what this is. We wouldn't understand it, and it would be terrifying. We have a hard time with things we don't understand. It's perfect. I think it's a perfect, perfect ending. It's yeah. It's absolutely fantastic in all that way. I will say the one thing that um, where I I think we really get a good clean shot of the thing with like intent and emotion on its face is like one of my favorite. Like it's one of the most understated, but also like probably my favorite kill if you want to like phrase it that way in the whole movie <laughs> is when yeah. Blair gets um, Gary uh, in the oh yes facility yes. underneath um, yeah. where he like. 
suffocates him by like stuffing his hand on his mouth and then his fingers start to like melt into his skin and he's absorbing him um via via his face and and gary can't scream out for help and the look on blair's face is just like one of like okay we're fucking done here like whatever the situation was up to that point whether whether the thing was intentionally hostile or not or whether or not it was um you know just you know breathing and just moving through the world or if it was like trying to help them or whatever at that point it is so fucking pissed at these people and so mad about what it is what they have done to it uh that it is just like nope we're fucking done here and it's like this weirdly dark and intimate kind of uh kind of scene in that movie compared to like the very very visceral violent um moments of like people's hands getting severed and their heads getting bitten in half and stuff like that but in this scene it's just like it's such a human way to die but also with this like strange little twist on it where he's like Skin flashes out literally like intermingling with him on screen and then immediately that is undercut by this shot of uh blair thing dragging gary on the ground like a sack of meat uh by the skin <laughs> on his face in this like very like just nope we're yep this is over now you're you're in you're in here with me uh kind of moment and it's just one of my yeah. favorite things in the movie that just never gets like i don't think like uh talked about or referenced as much as some of the other bigger flashier things mm-hmm. um, i will say uh the only part of the movie, after seeing it probably way too many times, that I don't watch with, like, an absolute, like, I, I'll be watching this movie. This and Alien are, are two of the only movies that I do this, where I have seen it enough that I, I know most of the beats at this point, and I know most of the lines, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, like, looking at very specific background details. I'm looking at, like, specific things in the production design or, or, or you know, just being so glued to the screen to look at any little thing or, or notice the lighting in a very specific way. Um, I will say the only part of this movie that I don't really do that with is this kind of action sequence toward the end. Mm. Um, I don't think it's weak. I think it's good. I think it's well done. But for some reason, it just doesn't grab me the way that the kind of the building of tension, because we're really building tension the entire way through, even as all hell breaks loose. Uh, all hell is broken loose multiple times in this movie. And we are still really tense. Uh, that's one thing that's so masterful about this movie is that it's still incredibly tense even when we've seen all these things. As, you know, Carpenter had said about, oh, it's less scary once you see the monster. But somehow, through kind of all the things we've been talking about for the last 52 minutes, like, it's doing that and it's still keeping tension. It's doing horror and terror and it keeps kind of going uh, between the two and it's doing it really well. But this kind of action sequence, I'm like, no, it's good. It's well done. It's, it's well made. It's well framed. But I'm not as obsessed with it the way I am basically every scene up into it and then the kind of very ending yeah yeah uh i think i think that yeah there's a little maybe a sense of like it's not even a rushed ending it's just like we go through a lot of bodies real quickly at the ending there (laughs) and then and then there's an explosion uh but i do I, i do love the framing around this is another thing i kind of appreciated more on this viewing um because like despite the fact that it is kind of an action packedish ending uh, with the big Blair thing and you know it's a, basically a boss battle at the end yeah. uh, it, the camera does not frame it in the way that again like uh, circling back to like the re- idea of reaction shots and stuff like that that was common in horror movies at the time 
in things that were common in action movies at the time. The the final shot of um, McReady throwing the dynamite at the thing is not one of like ultra dramatic. Um, oh, we're going to yeah. pan in real close on this dynamite as it arcs in slow motion through the air and lands right at the thing's feet. And you know that it's going to land or whatever. It's like McReady seeing, saying, yeah, well, fuck you, too. And he like just kind of like limply kind of tosses it underhand at it. We don't even see the dynamite get near the thing. He's just like, yeah. he's like trying his best to um, deal with the situation, but he doesn't even stick around to determine if he's actually thrown it or if he's about to kill it or not. He's just kind of like hoping to God that it works <laughs> and getting the fuck out of there because like, yeah, that's kind of probably what you would do in that situation. And the camera doesn't treat it as anything else besides like this very workmanlike motion uh, that I really appreciate. Yeah. Uh, do we want to talk about the one possible negative I don't I don't want to call it a negative because I don't mm. think it's necessarily a negative here but it is commented upon a lot that you know uh, the cast was all men and uh, most of the crew was men too there, there were certainly women who worked in um, pre-production post-production and actually Adrian Barbeau is the voice of the computer at the very beginning the chess computer at the beginning which is fun um, but it is kind of a, a so there's I'm of two minds about it. On one side, uh, I'm glad there's no like shitty, terrible love interest, <laughs> bullshit, sexual tension, like woman should just be there to like flash her tits in front of the camera and be like, I'm a girl in Antarctica. Like it's not <laughs> that would be worse, I think. Than Literally having... a thing that happened in Alien that the, they add, they added the scene of Ripley like taking her pants off at the end of that movie because Ridley Scott thought that the needed, movie needed to be sexier. Yeah. There's. There's a whole lot, yeah, going on with that for sure. There was like, God, like years of film criticism where they all fought each other, whether or not that was like good or whatever. But yeah, it's, I do think it like, it's better to just not have a woman character if you're just going to only have like a terrible shithole of a woman character. But there is, there is something to be said for like taking to task the idea that like, oh, men are the default. Like we don't, we only have men because men are are the default human, right? Like there is like a little bit of like okay, that's there's sexism, and there also was a, a John Carpenter interview, and I don't have the specific interview in front of me, but it was referenced again on the Faculty of Horror podcast, so I need to give them a shout out uh, that he did claim at one point that he thought of the thing as a feminine presence, and that it would mm -hmm. be more interesting to think of like men dealing with the feminine presence, which is kind of calling to attention like women as deceitful right or women as unknowable like mm. women have alien brains because we can't possibly understand what women think because they're a different type of creature like there is like a little bit of that to this which again i don't think we need to like call 911 and say we have a problematic uh, element here it's just like <laughs> it is a thing of note uh in the movie for sure i think it would be a different movie if there were women yeah. in it um it I, I don't know whether it would be a better or worse movie, but it would be a different one. Um, sure. And I think, I don't know, for me, like, I guess I just feel like, and maybe I'm totally wrong because I, I don't actually know that much about Carpenter um, or any, most of the other people like who worked on this film, but it feels like a self-conscious examination of this stuff. <clears throat> like sure. it feels just given that Carpenter is someone who has done a lot of horror, um, like who, who basically invented that whole genre with Halloween. Um, yeah. It feels like a, an intentional choice um, in the thing to not have women there. 
Um, and I think insofar as like the thing is like a feminine presence, I don't know. I don't really see it that way. I see it, if anything, more as like, it's a lot of just like threats to masculinity, right? The thing is mm. like this, like, because a lot of the like attacks are like penetrative. Yeah. Um, and the thing is kind of this like omnisexual creature because it's like penetrative, but also like consumptive, like the jaw yeah. scene uh, is very yonic. And uh, I just see it as like, yeah, like men in this situation, like doing their best and ultimately just like breaking like the whole like society of men just kind of collapsing in the face <laughs> of this thing that like uh, maybe if they had the skills maybe if they had like a different set of skills they would have been able to better deal with it like yeah. if like if they had like the i don't know like emotional sensitivity to be able to like distinguish when something was different about someone right uh, it, that would have maybe saved them um but they don't and that's part of the reason why it goes the way it does like the linguistic scientist from Arrival was there and she mm -hmm. was able to, you know, right. find some way of communicating. <laughs> well, not even necessarily just communicating with it, but like the way yeah. that they deal with each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I agree. Because on the one hand, they are very like sensible with like, we should probably kill this thing that's like a fucking monster. But on the other <laughs> hand, the way that they devolve into paranoia like so quickly and just like have the most extreme responses to everything, like, Kurt Russell's character is like not a like I kind of like that he is like not really a hero. No. Yeah. Like he's he just wants to get out of this alive. <laughs> um and he does what it takes to do that, but like he kind of sucks. And like yeah. uh, everyone in this movie kind of sucks. And like if they maybe if they didn't, they would have like had a better outcome. And to me that's like kind of part of what the movie is about. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I really like that. Like McCready like <sighs> He's a very reluctant hero in a lot of ways. Like, he doesn't actually try to seize power in any way. Like, mm -hmm. when Gary just gives him the gun, he, he says something like, I think everybody's just going to be a little easier if somebody else has this. He tries to give it to the, the poor dude who has a heart attack. Uh, and then and then just, you know. And then McCready says something that could be, like, borderline racist. Because uh, yeah. Childs offers to do it. And then he's like, no, we need somebody more level-headed. And it's like, you're going to you're gonna talk to the black dude like that? Like, yeah, fuck there's off. definitely like, a tinge of, like, racism yeah. in this in that scene for sure. Yeah. And John Carpenter is on, you know, on the record of having some, like, opinions. Uh, like, good opinions about, like, right, like, Halloween in particular was a movie that was basically, at the time, designed partly as, like, a, a takedown of, like, white flight and stuff like that. Of, like, mm. showing the rot in, like, white suburbs and stuff like that about like this idea that like all white people fled the you know the cities to get away from black people and it's just like actually your shit is like way worse <laughs> like kind of yeah. idea he had he had seen some shit uh in, yeah. in bowling green i believe yeah there's a, an awesome podcast that goes uh deep on this i think the ringer that did like a really good series on carpenter and halloween and his his like feelings about evil and racism that were very much like intertwined like these are this is this is just an evil in our world like fuck you yeah and um uh, but also, too, just like uh, throughout the movie, there is like uh, a lot of male ego bouncing off of against, uh, uh, sure. against each other. Like a yeah. lot of it is a lot of like if, yeah. if this thing is a thing that like wants to like make people as the as the, the things uh, interprets like it wants to like 
create this distributed consciousness or thinks that a distributed consciousness is better. So this kind of like undercurrent of just like, well, individuality and my individuality in particular is the, is tantamount and is the most important thing. And I need to make sure everybody knows about it at any given time. And they set that up very early too, with like, you know, some very, it's, it's understated and it's maybe not even what they were going for, but like this idea of um, I, the Gary, I think it was, who brought the gun with him to Antarctica and like people are like, make I think it's Palmer or Windows makes fun of him for like, I was wondering when you were going to get a chance to use your fucking pop gun, like you <laughs> yeah. brought, a, brought a fucking revolver to Antarctica, you dumbass, like what does it make you feel <laughs> like a big, cool, important dude to do that? Like whatever. Um, yeah. The thing just wanted them to be able to fucking talk to each other. It just, right. it was like, oh my god, this fucking bunch <laughs> of dudes sitting around playing ping pong, like, fuck you guys. They're not even doing science. This is another <laughs> thing that's very funny to me. Every time I watch it, I'm like, what are what are they actually doing? <laughs> yeah. they're, they're not doing science. They have scientists who are, uh, you know, clearly, like, in a lab, uh, capable of doing a science. Nobody's doing a science. Like, what mm-hmm. the, are they just there maintaining for the winter? Is that, like... What's going on? But yeah, it's it's like a very funny thing of like, oh yeah, the the thing just wanted y'all to have like a distributed consciousness so you could all talk to each other and stop being such assholes. And yeah, no. What <sighs> is what's your favorite? Uh, as we sort of maybe like move into the end yeah. of this episode, uh, obviously the thing has influenced a lot of media. I'm curious, like, what's your favorite um, story or piece of media that? is clearly borrowing from the thing. Uh, do you want to go first, Steven? Boy, I don't even... Uh, if you have something in mind, I, I would say you go you go first, Danielle. But I, uh, I have nothing that's immediately jumping to mind, but I'm trying. Uh, there is a specific movie, and I'm, I'm looking at Shudder for the proper name right here. Um... But I, I'll find it in a second. But it's a I, I very, have... very, uh, it's a really awesome film that takes very directly from it. Uh, it's not in Antarctica or anything, but it is like cold. It's it's a Canadian film, I believe, where it oh. takes place in a hospital. And there is like some sort of cult aspect and there's some the sort void, of creature is aspect. Is, is that what you're thinking of? Which one? The Void? Yes, The Void. It's called The Void. Yeah. I was like, it's it's a, it's one of those, The Thing. It, oh, God, I just did it. I just did it on our own podcast where I said the name of the fucking... Ah, okay. It's an interesting poll, though. It's not one I would have immediately associated with the thing. It's an awesome movie. It's from, you know, maybe three or four years ago, and it just does that incredible, like, bottle show kind of uh, vibe so well. Yeah. Uh, Really exciting, really fun, really interesting. It's not obviously on the level of the thing, but... I think it's a, a really good underrated movie that does a lot of cool stuff. Uh, mm. Very much the same vibe. A lot of paranoia, a lot of I don't know you, you don't know me, little factions kind of uh, happening yeah. in a horrible survival situation with uh, you know horrifying creature shit happening. I, I just saw that movie like a few months ago. That is, that is a definitely a good movie. It's not, yeah, it's like you said, it's not like an instant classic like this, but it's definitely like people, if people like that style of like weird monstery body horror-y stuff in like gooey horror, that, that <laughs> might be a good one for them to go for. Yeah. Uh, the one, I this is a movie I haven't seen in years, so I don't know how well it holds up for a variety of reasons, but um, the one that keeps jumping to mind, and <laughs> it's weird because it's like a movie that is like, very vocally uh, a spiritual successor to a different um, 70s or 80s horror movie, uh, Night of the Creeps, but uh, Slither Mm. by James Gunn. Oh, shit, okay. Do you remember that movie at all? Vaguely, very vaguely. 
Uh, Slither was a movie that came out in theaters. It was like one of the first movies that I saw where it was like I, I where I had like a certain sense of consciousness around the idea that like some that people were making weird movies and that those weird movies could, could be put out in like wide release in theaters and just flop and nobody would care about them, but I would enjoy them. And it's like a pre Guardians of the Galaxy James Gunn directed movie starring um, Michael Rooker um, and uh, Elizabeth Banks is in this. Elizabeth and Banks, Fillion is on this. <laughs> Uh, and it's like a James Gunn has said it's a it's a spiritual successor to Night of the Creeps, which is another horror movie from the around the era of uh, the thing that I really love. But it, that's a movie uh, a, very much about the idea of like a distributed consciousness alien that just kind of comes out of nowhere and starts absorbing people into its being. Um, and it's very it's, like slimy and gooey and weird. And that one is much more of a horror comedy nightmare thing, <laughs> but, mm. it's, but it, that definitely comes to mind. Um, yeah. Uh, well, of course my, my two, uh, directly favorite, uh, things to come out of the thing are the, uh, 2011, uh, prequel that was just absolutely amazing. Um, perfect. In, uh, uh. <laughs> perfect reimagining of the, uh, themes and ideas in the thing. <laughs> I'm lying. Mm. The movie's fucking hot trash. <laughs> I, I, uh, I have really complicated feelings actually about the the that because I actually think it starts relatively strong, mm. but it falls completely apart at the end. Like it's it's like a very like okay, I see where you're going with this. If you had to do what they're doing, if you had to do a prequel, it, it does some okay things, but then yeah, I think it falls completely the fuck apart. Um, also, that's a movie yeah. where. I, th- I believe semi-famously for that movie, they shot most of it with practical effects, and then the studio was like, "This looks bad. Fuck this!" Yep. And then reshot it with all with CGI. And the CGI. Let me just it's share. Terrible. Like, I, can <laughs> I just share uh, an image from the CGI? Merritt, have you seen this prequel? No. Here's a here's an image from the pre, uh, CGI prequel to the thing yeah. that takes place in the Norwegian base. Oh no! Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's a. Uh, it's not good. My guy looks like a fucking starcraft monster <laughs> yeah he's an infe- oh that's the wrong one he's an infested yeah. terran for sure yeah he looks like a the one of the like a mini portrait from like the original starcraft <laughs> he really like, does like i'm about to click on this guy and he's about to say like for the hive or something mm-hmm. yep. yeah that movie is not great but mary did you have a thing that you wanted to bring uh, up that inspired inspired by the thing yeah, I guess uh, the faculty is like a big oh, one for me. Yes. Um, oh my god. Which uh, John Stewart's the faculty. John Stewart's the faculty, starring <laughs> Elijah Wood. Um, yeah, like about a decade later, and it's basically it's like kind of the thing, but set in a school, um, and it's about just like what if your teachers really were evil? Um, kind of a fun, it, it definitely more like you know lighthearted. But uh, yeah. definitely scared the shit out of me when I first saw oh, it. Oh, God, yeah. Um, fucking terrifying. Um, and then also Resident Evil 4. Oh! Which, like, okay. not, not necessarily the same vibes exactly, but definitely really just borrowing from aesthetically a lot because, uh, you know, prior to 4, it was all just, like, zombies. And then 4, they're like... No, what if weird parasite monster that like is just like yeah, what if it's just like weird giant worm teeth monster? Um <laughs> and like very the thing uh in terms of like the the last scene of the movie when it's just this like horrible monstrosity. Huh. Um a lot of the the encounters in that game are 
very much like that. And actually, like Resident Evil 4 does a thing that I actually think that the the prequel to the things I remember thinking at the time very specifically didn't do, which was like surprising you with like how in how much ingenuity the, the creature could have sometimes where it's like in the thing, it opens up its chest and bites that guy's arms off when it's defibrillating <laughs> him. You know, it's, its head comes off and turns into a spider to try and escape. And Resident Evil 4 um, would be like, literally, you shoot this guy's head off, and normally that would kill a zombie in a Resident Evil game, except his mm -hmm. head explodes and turns into a big knife instead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very um, good. Also, I've, I've shared an image from the movie Slither. I'm uh, looking yeah. at this, and it looks bad. Yeah, that. that's, that's uh, Michael Rooker pre like mid transformation in that movie that movie mm. goes some places in Looks terms bad of like to see yeah you, you, <laughs> oh the movie very much wants you to not like looking at it <laughs> oh that's you always love that yeah it's uh, i wanted to mm. know uh it, it's not a direct inspiration but clear it, there's no way they weren't feeding off each other in in some fashion but i i've always been just uh, a huge Cronenberg fan, especially the the sort of body horror of the 80s. And, you know, the next year Videodrome came out. And again, yeah. I don't think mm. there's like a direct inspiration there, but some of the kind of body horror stuff that happened with guns and hands and mutilated parts. Oh, and for things, sure. Yeah. It just does feel of a piece uh, with that in some ways. Totally. And also uh, The Fly is the other movie that is like the great remake, right? The Thing and The Fly are like oh, the two yeah. greatest remakes of all time. Like technically, you know, there was an earlier movie by the same name with a similar plot and, and that the, sort of thing. The so. Thing from Outer Space, I think, was the 1950s The Thing movie. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, The Fly, which is a, you know, incredible, incredible classic. We should also. watch The Fly sometime on here. Yeah, it's from the same era. You know, it's like five years later. Never uh, seen very it. much working Never seen it. It's good. It's oh, good. really? Yeah. It's up there. Uh, another thing, like, I just wanted to, now that you've mentioned it, um, this is kind of a segue, but mentioning things that uh, came out around the same time. Merritt, you actually made me think of this initially earlier on in this podcast when you mentioned E.T. coming out recently around this movie um and i just wanted to kind of think back on like what big sci-fi movies came out around the thing and sure enough uh the thing was bookended uh in terms of years uh in 1980 and 1983 by empire strikes back and return of the jedi yep. uh came out one at, one after the other after the other um wow. And it just made me think about, because this movie was so critically panned, it made me think about a really great video that Movies with Mikey, uh, Mikey Newman did, uh, the YouTube channel, um, talking about the reception to those two movies at the time, or the more generally the three movies at the time, but uh, more specifically about Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, and how a lot of people at the time were way more into Return of the Jedi because it was a happy ending, and mm, Empire Strikes Back God. was like ambiguous, and like <laughs> it was like one of the first instances of people's ships uh being like canonically debunked because people were like well of course luke and leia are going to end up with each other and then it turned out to not be the case and people were very <laughs> upset at the time with empire strikes back and then yeah return of the jedi was the like the happy return to like a, a, a just a fun ending for people and apparently that's what people wanted at the time because uh, <laughs> the thing definitely wasn't it apparently what was up with people in the Reagan era? What the fuck, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, don't, I mean, I can understand uh, wanting, <laughs> you know, wanting a, a happy ending, uh, especially yeah, at sure. the time. And uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I get it. Yeah. No, I, I, I understand wanting to be happy. 
Couldn't yeah, I remember what that was like. <laughs> I guess I won't elaborate on that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um, no, yeah. Oh, God. Mm. The is, thing is fucking great. That's, it's a great movie. That's what I got. It's it's truly transcendent. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. Uh, perfect pacing. Close to perfect. Kind of overall. And... Uh, yeah, just if, if folks haven't seen it, uh, I think it's absolutely worth getting over their barrier if you have a hard time with horror, if you get scared. I think it's I think it's worth it, even if that's yeah. uh, a little tough for you. Unless, of course, you have like a real uh, a real issue, which I get it. And if you you know, if you have a real issue with the movie, just play the 2002 PlayStation 2 The Thing game published by Konami on consoles. Uh, that oh, is a direct that game is canonical actually sequel. Fascinating. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. But also, but also, if you don't want the if you like the idea of it being ambiguous as to what happened at the end of the thing, don't play that game because that game is just like, nah, here's what happened and who was who. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm that's that's a 2002 video game, right? Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that. We'll do it for this episode if you love to see it. Uh, but uh, yeah, check out our other podcasts. Um, other podcasts? Other podcasts? Yeah, there's two of them right now. Um, and there's a whole family of yeah, three products. There's, yeah. yeah, there's two other ones. There's three total. Um, we do Fan With, which is our flagship podcast. And we also do, right now, we're doing uh, a new Pope uh, podcast that's me and uh, Fanbyte Chief Liturgical Correspondent Eric Thurm. <laughs> and um, yeah, probably more stuff coming soon, so stay tuned. Oh, and Late Lunch as well. Yeah. Late Lunch, it's too. It's a different feed, but yeah. That is, yeah. yeah. There's also, it's also Late Lunch. A, a thing. Uh, we should yeah. maybe even just like say, because I think we're, we're putting out some like specific plans to do this now, but uh, that, that second feed with Late Lunch is probably going to be more of an experimental feed where we drop a lot of our more interesting, or not more interesting necessarily, fan with them you love to see are plenty interesting, but like <laughs> some of our things that don't necessarily like aren't going to be entire series, like in one-off interviews yeah. and like little little talk show things here and there. We just put in a thing where we talked about uh, E3 and the ESA that was really interesting, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, uh, yeah, do you want to just tell folks where they can find y'all online? Yeah, Stephen, want to go first? Sure. I am Stephen Strom, S-T-E-V-E-N-S-T-R-O-M on Twitter. Um, you can also read my stuff on fanbyte.com. I promise I'll write something in the near future uh, and <laughs> that I haven't just completely dropped off the face of the planet. I'm just answering a lot of emails lately. That happens. Uh, <laughs> I'm at Danielle R.I. on Twitter. And I'm at Merrick K. on Twitter. So uh, until next time, what do we do? You love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Bye. Sorry. Bye. Bye. Bye.